Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo, and I'm joined today by a return guest, Jedediah Yue, who's the founder and chairman of Delphix. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jed. So the first story this week is two news articles in one. Last week, the internet was abuzz because Coinbase, a very large crypto exchange, announced that they had regulatory approval to list coins that are considered securities. And everybody thought that was great. People were celebrating. And then just a few days later, they had to retract that statement, which is actually a big no-no, a big oops, so to speak, in that uh, people usually don't issue press releases saying that the SEC or any other regulatory body said they can do something and then retract from that. The story, if you follow my LinkedIn, Keith Koo, is that oftentimes, unless you get it in writing by your regulator and explicit approval to announce it, I would not rely on anything that would be considered an informal communication. The other big news last week was that chip maker Broadcom announced they're buying very well-known computer software manufacturer, Computer Associates, or CA. And it made a lot of people, including the analysts, scratch their heads because why would a chip maker buy a enterprise software company? And one of the comments was, it's like a bicycle merging with a geranium, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, we still haven't heard the rationale behind the merger, uh, but Broadcom is buying CA for $19 billion. I'm sure there'll be more news down the line. A couple weeks back, there was a really terrible story about a workplace shooting in Annapolis. The story behind that, though, is that the perpetrator was not willing to give up their identity, and also they didn't have any identification on them. Uh, this is just telling you the power of facial recognition software where the police were able to upload the alleged perpetrator's picture up into the internet, and they were able to find out who exactly it was within a few minutes. And this just goes to speak on how powerful facial recognition software has become and how it can be used as a tool in law enforcement and other activities. And that's the news of the week. So once again, I'm joined by Jedediah Yue, who goes by Jed, who's the chairman and founder of Silicon Valley data management company, Delphix. And as well as we had Jed on really early on in our show when he had written a book, now a bestseller, Disrupt or Die, what the world needs to learn from Silicon Valley to survive the digital era. And we have him back to talk about all the things that have happened since then. So thanks again, Jed. Yeah, it's uh, great to be back on the show. So um, in terms of our own story, our show was originally called Guardian Insights, a uh, permutation of our consulting from Guardian Insight Group. And Jed, uh, early on, had said, you know, with what you're doing, you should really tie that Silicon Valley name. So I have to give Jed some credit that he actually 
helped us rebrand very early on in our show days. So thanks, Jed. You're very welcome. One of the best parts about writing the book is many CEOs have come up to me recently and over the last several months saying that they've really changed their business strategy and even their go-to-market models or their product strategies after reading the book or hearing some of my talks. Yeah, and that's really what this show's about, right? I think uh, going back to your background, uh, amongst being very well-educated, Jed is really the accidental entrepreneur. He actually went from being an English major, a high school teacher, to the CEO of several software companies, um, and then quite well. So Jed, let's remind ourselves how that all happened for you. Yeah, as you said, it's pretty much on accident. I had no intention of becoming a software CEO. I was never even really interested in technology. When I grew up, most of my friends were the ones who were really interested in technology and software, and I'd have to ask my friends to help me set up my computer and set up my apps. And so a lot of them asked me, how did you end up becoming a software CEO? So, you know, I I recalled in our first show, we were talking about some of those early days, how you uh, were able to, you know, being no one and not even known in the Silicon Valley, how you were able to get VCs to invest in your companies. Um, What, if anything, has changed since then? Well, it's certainly a lot easier after you've shipped a product that's done over a billion in revenue. It's much, much easier to get financial capital today. The interesting thing is you, you really don't need those kinds of advantages. Uh, Back when I started my first software company, I was a high school teacher at the time when I came up with the first idea. And I had my summer off, so I did some consulting for a tech company. And that's where I came up with the idea for Avamore, my first software company. If you have a really great idea, you can be an absolute nobody, and you'll still be able to get capital. And I can attest to that. Avamore was a great product. Um, My days of running technology vendor management for Cisco did one of the earliest enterprise deals prior to your acquisition by EMC. I believe, and uh, great, great products get great investment dollars. And so um, it didn't stop for you. So then you started Delphix. So what we did with Delphix is we fixed a lot of the problems with Avamar. With Avamar, we took data that used to go onto tape backups and we moved it onto disk and made it better, cheaper, and faster than tape media for backing up enterprise data. Now, the problem is, even on Avamar, even though we stored the data on disk, you still had to restore it to all these new locations in order to use that data. And so I asked myself, why do you have to restore this data to another disk location before you can use it? It just didn't make any real sense. And I realized that Avamar and all of our competitors has got, had gotten it wrong. The other thing that had happened in the world is the demands for data were exploding all over the place. So companies needed more data for development and QA and test environments. They needed more environments for reporting and analytics. They need to get access to their data, move it to the cloud. There were lots of needs and demands for data. And so what we did at Delphix is we solved the restore problem by allowing you to use multiple versions of data all from the same location. Right. And that's why um, I've had a pretty long history with Delphix myself. Uh, When we were speaking last, we were saying that this would actually be uh, a very good product to solve for some of the data privacy concerns that are coming out in the world. Especially one of the big problems with data is you have to manage the, the regulatory compliance issues around data. And so we manage data security as well. Before we move data into another environment, we're able to strip away any data that shouldn't be there. So we can de-identify, mask, or obfuscate data, anonymize data before it reaches all these endpoint environments. And that reduces the surface area of risk. It minimizes the data per the requirements of things like GDPR. 
Right, and that's why I thought GDPR is a great use case for Delphix. And then um, as just as recent as last week, California enacted uh, the very first stringent data privacy regulation in the United States. It won't go into effect until 2020, but they think that that's going to be even more stringent than GDPR and set the gold standard for the United States. Yeah, there's a real tension between enabling data flow to strategically drive value to your business and all of these regulations and requirements. And by virtue of being able to secure the data before we enable data flow, we're able to help companies achieve what they need to achieve and manage their risks. Well, great. Well, Jed, thanks again for being with us on today's show, catching up on what's going on with Delphix and your book, Disrupt or Die. Uh, when we get back, let's talk about some of the other applications, uh, success stories of people who've been following your innovation models. I want to remind everyone that IBM has a call for code going on between now and August 31st for disaster relief. There's $30 million in prize money. If you have any questions about today's show or a call for code, email us at info at svn.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Today, I'm joined by founder and chairman of Delphix, Jedediah Yue. So the question of the week is a follow-up to when we had Dr. John Madison, Chief Health Information Officer of Kaiser on, and he was talking about carbon biases versus systemic biases or systematic biases. So I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper, especially in the age of artificial intelligence, that there is this concept of confirmation bias or biases in artificial intelligence. There are many different versions of that, so I'm just going to talk about one today, which is the data-driven bias, and I'll also tie this in with our final segment of the show on an on a example. So data-driven bias is when systems are trained actually still by humans, and we talk about this a lot in AI and blockchain for some of the software groups that I advise that people are trying to solve, ultimately making machines as smart as people, Elon Musk and even Jed in the studio today have talked about this frequently. So an example of data-driven bias is that Nikon has a weird flaw in their facial recognition systems with Asian faces, and HP has a flaw in their facial rec- or in their skin tone recognition systems. And so this is just going back to the point that as of today, as much as people are very fearful of AI, um, AI is still not at the level of replacing humans completely. Not that that day won't be coming, but it's not there today. And this is kind of what Dr. Madison was getting to when he was talking about that we should not put our full trust in machines just yet. And I'll be speaking more and more about biases and systems um, in future shows. So Jed, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. So in our first segment, we're covering all the great things that have happened uh, for both the companies you've started. Avamar, which was a while back and acquired by EMC and now Delphix, and then your book, Disrupt or Die, which I was really pleased to see in that first week we had you on in the publish of your book, you I think you had 100,000 downloads. There there were quite a lot of downloads, yeah. Yeah, and, and I know it was the number one bestseller in innovation, which is what we're talking about right now. So what were some of the success stories you can talk about? I haven't talked to the CEOs to get permission, but I've had several across different industries who've come up to me and talked about some of the challenges they were having with their business model and how they could really take advantage 
of all of these technologies that are available today to make their make their businesses and their go-to-market strategies more digital. I had one CEO who told me that he actually walked away from 70% of the gross revenues of his business in order to change his business model to take more advantage of digital. Wow. And then what was the rationale for doing that? If you look at if you look at the world today, there are so many technologies that you can make use of. You have the internet, which has friction-free access to billions of potential users. You have all this open soft open source software that's available for you to use for free. Uh, you have cloud platforms that allow you to access as much infrastructure, as much compute infrastructure as you need in order to build whatever scalable app you need. And then you have all these advanced services like AI and machine learning and deep learning. All of these are available for any company, anybody starting a business. And if you're not taking advantage of it, you really have to ask yourself why. Right. So in that example, um, what were the results that the CEO achieved? They they just made the shift, so I, I okay. haven't been able to follow up and find out okay. what the results are. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think we'll... We'll save it for later in the show, but we'll talk about why it's so hard usually for companies to go through this problem. So then you also have this concept of thin tech. Yeah, the concept of thin tech is how it's getting thinner and easier and easier. It takes less and less technology in order to innovate and disrupt a longstanding industry. And it all started in the early 90s with the invention of the internet and then the open sourcing of critical software platforms like Linux and then the creation of things like Git which allowed open source developers to more easily share and access all their free software. Then in the mid-2000s, you also had the development of the mega platforms. You had, you had Apple, with I, Apple with their release of the app stores, and then you had Google with the Android app stores, and then you had platforms like Facebook that emerged. So today, you don't have to build a platform and then go collect a billion users. You can just launch an app on these existing platforms. And then you also had Amazon around the same time invent the cloud. You don't need to manage these football fields of servers and infrastructure, you can just use all this infrastructure that's available by the drip. And so the world has really changed, and um, there are more and more advanced services available in the cloud than ever for you to take advantage of and build a an application that can really help you take control of an industry. And that's why the amount of innovation that's required to change the world keeps getting thinner as you rely on this increasingly built-up stack of available tools. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I had uh, read just yesterday that Apple, when they launched and they created the App Store, that uh, you know there's X number, I don't know the exact number, but there's X number today of iOS developers. But would you know the ratio of Google developers, Google um, App Store developers, Google Play, to, to iOS is since 2010? No, I don't. It's five to one. It's crazy, right? And, and that's because Apple is perceived as expensive, as closed system. Google and Android was seen as more open. And I think this just proves your point that as things are becoming, uh, it, really the point of that was the rate of adoption, right? So Apple took a while to get going and then Google came late to the game, people thought. And now Google, in terms of it, it's a cheaper platform, it's seen as more accessible in some ways. There's 5X number of developers. And, and that goes back to where uh, we had talked before the show started, that we're really seeing this even on a hyperscale where there's these, these centralists, right? We talk about it that uh, people think that blockchain may or may not be the next wave, and whether it is or not, um, there isn't that yet that adoption. There isn't the same number of developers, and the technology's not quite there yet. So what will be interesting is whether in the next 18 months or two years, whether that, if you, if you, if you charted it, like if we said, um, you know, iPhone today versus Google developers to uh, 
the central, I mean, the ability to be able to adopt Amazon Web Services and these open source software, and now people are building on top of blockchain. It'd be, it'd be good to see which hypothesis comes out. Yeah, if you, if you look at blockchain compared to major platforms like Apple and all their iOS devices, or even Google with Android and, and Amazon's cloud, it, it's really tiny compared, the Absolutely. total adoption is tiny compared to these real mega platforms by big tech vendors. And the real key is, can somebody come up with the application or the product that really makes blockchain become significant to the world? Right. And that's, that's why people in the decentralized community are, are looking at whether or not there will be that killer app. It's not there yet, certainly, but that's where people are trying to, to solve for it. It'll be interesting if they can apply a FinTech principle to do it. Absolutely. So what are some of the other things you're noticing in um, this kind of rate of change that we're looking in right now? It's certainly getting easier and easier to, to disrupt industries. And, you know, one of the big things that's happening right now is you have more and more of these AI, machine learning, deep learning, NLP type services that are available in Amazon's cloud or Azure or any of the other major clouds that are available today. And as companies start, as companies and entrepreneurs and disruptors start to use these services, you're going to see the next wave of applications and products that will uh, continue to take down, take down industries. Do you personally have a prediction for what that might look like or be? I, I think it's going to be scattered across lots and lots of products. The The key is not to focus on the on the tools, but on the products themselves, on the solutions that are really going to aggregate users, deliver value, and build businesses. Okay. And just as a reminder, Jed wrote a best-selling book, Disrupt or Die, What the World Needs to Learn from Silicon Valley to Survive in the Digital Era. It's still available on Amazon.com. So just a couple of reminders. I'll be keynoting a conference on cyber risk and blockchain at Upwork Hartford in Connecticut, July 20th. If you happen to be in the area, please check it out. Uh, be about 500 CISOs in attendance. Also, we're planning a Tulip conference in Shanghai, China in the winter of 2018. If you're interested in attending or sponsoring, please email us at info at svin.biz. We'll be right back with Jed Yeah. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. I'm in the studio today with chairman and founder of Delphix, Jed Yeah. So I've been running this theme lately on tips of the week, and this one is two different use cases, but by the same vendor, which is Google. So uh, we joke a lot about whether you think your phone is spying on you. Um, actually, it is. So there is a study that was just released by a university that where you wouldn't think about your phone actually spying you in terms of a microphone. Uh, and uh, my, my engineer, Marco, is smiling through the window because he knows what I'm going to talk about. It was determined that third-party apps on Android actually can take screenshots from your phone and send it to themselves without you ever knowing. So the screenshot will not show up in your photos. But you in before you get into, well, that's not right, you have to always remember what you give third-party apps access to because it'll tell you if you actually look at each one of them, which could be hundreds. And related to that, along third-party apps, not your Android phone, but also Gmail, there are third-party apps in Gmail that actually do read all of your emails as well. So, you know, back to this, if you're paranoid and you think your phone or your email is spying on you, it is. 
So Jed, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Keith. So in the first couple of segments, we were talking about the follow-up from your book, Disrupt or Die, What the World Needs to Learn from Silicon Valley in the Digital Era. And we also caught up with you on what's going on with Delphix and some of the use cases and success stories from um, your teachings on innovation. I wanted to shift gears a little bit into why does it seem, because we brought up some of these large enterprises, why does it seem that they have such a hard time with this disruption? One of the big problems for enterprises is they're too busy chasing these bright, shiny tech objects. They're always looking at major technologies like blockchain and ICOs and AI and machine learning and deep learning services. And they think that running a number of parallel projects around these kinds of technologies is somehow going to magically create disruptive innovation within their organizations. But they're really just uh, red herrings. It's not about the technology. It's really about a product that will help you take control of an entire industry. The technology is just part of the how. It's part of the how of the what, and the what is the product. Okay. And, you know, you brought this up before. So it, we've said also, you know, large enterprises, and I won't name them, but we're close to many of them, uh, you think of it like the Titanic and you got to turn the ship, right? So we, we've talked about those problems before in past shows. We've also talked about how uh, certain companies do what's called a spin-in, which is where they've, they decide that they do want to go a different direction. They think that the Titanic is too big, and they actually seed the idea on-premise, but in essence create a virtual firewall from the rest of the company. Um, do you think that's a good model? In short, no. It's what I would call a sidecar. So a lot of these companies, they've read books like The Innovator's Dilemma or The Innovator's Solution, and they'll either buy a company or they'll create an innovation arm that's separate from the rest of the organization. But it's not central and at the top of the organization. If you look at Apple as an example of true disruptive innovation, when Steve Jobs was inventing the iPhone, it was the core center run by the person at the top of the organization. It was the most important product to the company. And everything else was going to change within Apple and around the rest of the world. So it is a core program at the run at the top of the company. And just think, if, if you really have disruptive innovation that's going to define the future of your industry, how can it possibly not be the top program within your own company? If you have to run it as a sidecar or if you're running it as a sidecar, it can't be that important. That's a good point. So then you and your role, you're the, you're the chairman of Delphix. How does your team or um, any team trying to present to their board of directors this concept, um, how do they do that successfully? In terms of what might be really innovative or really yeah, how do you, How do you sell the vision? I mean, again, you, you, back to the analogy of the Titanic, you got to turn the ship around before it sinks, right? Uh, what... What do people do? How do they how do they speak to you? You know, one of the one of the biggest challenges with um, turning the Titanic is finding the what. It's really finding the 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 product that is going to define the future of your industry. And the the challenge is that these companies aren't looking for the what. They're they actually are often pursuing all the wrong things. So I've had many Fortune one hundred and one thousand companies ask me to come in and look at their innovation portfolios, their transformation portfolios, and their top projects. And I can't tell you how many of these companies, their, their number one program will be around cloud or user experience design. Uh, some of them are even farther behind. They'll say agile and DevOps are their biggest initiatives. <laughs> and then you'll have you know, some of the more advanced ones will say, well, we're running a lot of machine learning and AI and RPA experiments. Uh, these are not the answers. 
the technologies are not the answers. They are not the what. They are not the products. They are not the solutions that are going to change an industry. They're just pieces that you use. They're tools that you use to build the what. And so they're chasing these usual suspects, but none of them are really going to deliver them the transformation that they're looking for. So just just going back, just for the listener, what does RPA stand for? An RPA is a robotic process automation. It's these bots that you can use to automate pieces and you can connect it with other services like machine learning that can read or listen to audio. And so there are ranges of ranges of things you can automate today that you couldn't in the past. Great. And so, you know, going back to the comment about all these companies looking at ways they can adopt these either new technologies or processes, or some of them actually aren't new. You're a doctor. These are symptoms. What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? The, the first thing is you have to stop chasing all of these usual suspects. You have to really know that you're looking for the what. You know, one of the big problems that big companies have is they have lots of people. So I keep hearing, you know, CTOs, CIOs, CEOs say, well, my big problem is culture. I have to go change the culture of the company before I can go and innovate. But that's not the problem and that's not the answer. When you say culture, you're thinking about the 10,000, the 20,000, the 30,000 employees you have and their interactions and how they think and how they, how, they, how they build products or how they innovate. But that's not how innovation really happens. In Silicon Valley, it's two guys or two women or two people sitting in a garage. They come up with a great idea. It's persuasive and compelling and they go and conquer the world with it. It starts with a very small number of people and a great idea. And you can't find the great idea by trying to influence 10,000 people and their quote-unquote culture. So then in these large-scale enterprise companies, how do you inject that into their culture? It, it's not about the culture. So the, the, what you really want to do is once you've found a product that is really transformational, that product is what begets the culture. The product comes first. If you have a product that's really powerful, you can paint a compelling vision around that product. And that vision is going to allow you to assemble a team of missionaries, people who are really zealously passionate about creating that vision, making it a reality. So for instance, like with Elon Musk, his product is rocket ships to bring us to Mars. And so he can sell a vision about plan B for all of humankind. Well, that's a really compelling, powerful vision. It's why he's able to harness so much talent and work it so hard in order to achieve his end goals. And, and that's what creates the culture. You don't, you don't start culture first. You start product first. Not that I disagree with that, but what's interesting is my major is in organizational behavior, right? And so I study, uh, and I've talked about it before, I study how different enterprises, especially in the Silicon Valley, how they operate. So I won't, I won't attribute exact actual companies, but what you're describing, I can because you've mentioned these names, right? Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and even Larry Ellison in terms of uh, product people who have almost uh, dictatorial control, sometimes benevolent, sometimes not, around their product teams. What do you do with companies that run like um, a committee, or or even um, some of the you know millennial-led startups, or not startups anymore, they're multi-billion-dollar companies, are more by consensus. How do you get each one of them on board? Yeah, the the real problem there is you really can't run a company. You can't run a future product in a future industry uh, by committee. It's going to be small teams. You know, they're passionate about a great idea. They assemble the team around them, the greater team around them, to make that make that idea, make that product into reality. All of that is the antithesis of committee, and that that's what these committees need to look for. They need to look for that great idea. See, and that's where um, you know one of the really well-known CEOs now retired in the Valley, 
they had chosen to run this multi-billion dollar company by committee. In fact, 20 committees at one point. And that was uh, an interesting experiment. Um, some argued that it didn't work out so well. So, yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> so, so then again, I, I think uh, the conundrum is you, you want to drive for these new products. You want these small, innovative teams. And that's where the cultural react uh, will sprout from. I still think that it's going to be really hard, even with having somebody like you inside um, consulting to these Fortune 100s, for them to really, again, change or turn around the ship. Well, it all starts with the idea. If it's a really great idea, everything else becomes easier. I had no intention of going to business or even starting a tech company. And, you know, it's strange if you think about a high school teacher, why would VCs entrust millions of dollars in a high school teacher who was an English major? Uh, why would they entrust him with millions of dollars to start a company? Well, it all came down to the idea. The idea was what propelled me to start in the tech world. The idea was what convinced VCs to invest in my company. Yeah, and I have to really agree with that. I, I think when I think about my own advisory and the services we provide and talking to large companies who have delved right into AI or blockchain, we, we're the first to say, um, why blockchain? As, as much as I'm a proponent for some use cases, um, it, sometimes it doesn't really make sense because it, it doesn't yet scale. You have existing databases and technology that will do what you want it to do. So unless you're really just trying to, you know, we we, uh, we joked about, which wasn't really a joke, um, a concept called Kodak coin, which was Kodak just lending its brand out to an ICO. And it, it at the time before 2000, um, the end of 2017, drove a lot of value but it was almost ethereal because there was nothing really behind that except the brand. And so I think that's where companies really could be looking at their innovation centers and looking at um, the concepts you're, you're promoting that it's beyond branding, it's beyond the hype of just latching on to this technology to say that you're in it. Yeah, it's definitely not the technology. The technology is just part of the insides of what really makes a great product and a great idea. So thanks again, Jed, for being on the show. Uh, I don't want anyone to go away. We're going to finish up the show with the what and what that means. I'm going to talk about a personal success story uh, to the extent I can actually disclose some of it. And really, I think uh, the theme today is that innovation is really about the product. It really doesn't matter the size or scale of your company. If you've got a great idea, you will get funding. You will find the right answer. So don't go away. We'll be right back. You're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Join again with Jed Yue, chairman of Delphix. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo, joined by very special guest, Founder and chairman of Delphix, Jedediah Yue, who's also the author of the best-selling innovation book, Disrupt or Die, What the World Needs to Learn from Silicon Valley to Survive the Digital Era. Thanks again, Jed, for being here today. Great to be back on the show. So, Jed, uh, we've spent the entire show talking about the learnings um, post-book, some of the use cases, the companies you've been working with and consulting with, the Fortune 100. Let's just go back to what your advice would be. My advice is to start with what? A lot of these companies, they're, they're looking for the wrong things. They're trying to influence culture. They're looking at technologies. But they really should be looking for the great product idea. And a great product idea just makes everything so much easier. It changes the entire game. And the better the product idea, the more it will change the game. Right. And I 
can attest to that. Uh, one of the companies who I can't yet disclose because the press release hasn't gone out yet, but it's a blockchain concept in real estate. Uh, you and I have both know these folks really well. They actually used your book as their guide in developing this product, this next generation product, um, combining the elements of blockchain SaaS, which is software as a service from a really well-known SaaS company, um, and with investors. And this just proves the point that if you have a really good idea, it's not really about the technology, it's about the framework, the use case, and then from there, um, good things will happen. Yeah, absolutely. If you have a great idea, you can be a nobody like I was when I first started out, and investors will give you money. They'll just hand you money so you can go pursue your dream. And if you have a great idea, when you start talking to people, they want to come work for you, and you can start building your team. And if you have a great idea and you can sell the people in the vision, that creates this culture, this really mission-driven culture where people will do everything they can to make that vision a reality. And once you have the culture and you have the team and you have the capital, it's very hard to stop you. Thanks. And um, I can also share that that also holds true for what we'll call a fourth generation blockchain company, which again, uh, Jen and I have talked a lot um, off microphone about where blockchain is today. Blockchain isn't necessarily uh, the killer app yet, but as each iteration comes through just like the internet back in the 90s, we could see at the point where um, it hits critical mass and does solve things for the enterprises we were talking about in our last segment. With that, Jed, how can enterprises adopt what you're preaching? Even if you work within a large organization or you're running a large organization, you're still looking for the great product idea that takes full advantage of the power of the internet and all of these freely available services and open source software you can use today. If you have a great idea, that will help you assemble and attract the team. It'll help you overcome the inertia of consensus in large bureaucratic organizations. It'll help you move the program from a sidecar into a core program within the organization. But you have to keep using the power of that idea to fight farther and farther north. You have to, it basically has to be run uh, right underneath the CEO or by the CEO. You really need the backing of the right board, you need the backing of the right investor set. And so you have to use that idea to overcome all of the legacy inertia that's stopping you. Right. And uh, you're finding that those conversations are easier and easier to happen? They, they are easier and easier to happen because all these companies are really looking for ways to prevent disruption. It's becoming more and more critical for every enterprise and every, in every industry to find the answer. How do you stop becoming another roadkill company <laughs> by Amazon or Apple or Facebook or the like. Yeah, yeah, you see it every day, especially in the retail space, just one by one. You see that things that are happening with Amazon force other industries you don't even think about sometimes, like pharmaceutical, to have to go do a 180 because they just didn't see it coming. So, Jed, thanks again for being here. Always happy to have you on. Please come back again. And uh, congratulations on the success of the book and all the advisory services you provide so I wanted to shift now into a new segment we're doing, and Jed, don't go away because I think you could help out. Um, this is a feature where we talk about these conundrums that come out from technology. So here's the setup. We know that data drives a lot of things and that machines are constantly tuning what our, our activities are. They monitor us on our browsing habits. Uh, there's a story from a few years ago where the head of big data for Target had talked about how they had a a way of identifying pregnant women faster than their spouse or their boyfriend 
right? And that they could do that by browsing habits. And so they started sending these targeted emails to women about all these baby products. And then uh, whether the women knew they're being spot monitored or not, they just wouldn't buy from Target. And so Target said they tuned their algorithm to start putting in lawnmowers and, uh, you know, rakes and gardening tools they thought men would be interested in just to kind of throw people off. That created another data-driven element, and there's a lot of questions about the ethics around that, is that it was then um, being seen as targeting men. So, like, now you share a computer with your 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 brother, your husband, whoever. How would you know whether your spouse is being targeted or not, or your, your partner? In some ways, there, there's an even deeper conundrum here. It's It's not just about who's being targeted. With, uh, with a lot of these major corporations, these big tech companies today and all of their feeds and advertisements, they're using machine learning and deep learning, all these algorithms. It's the software itself that's creating the models that results in the outputs, what you actually see in your ads. And a lot of, pe- the, a lot of these companies, they don't even know why the software is showing what it's showing. They just know that the results work. So part of the conundrum is not just whether or not you're being targeted or maybe you're being targeted in a way that isn't 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 good for society, it's that nobody actually knows why. It, we're all blind to it. It's just handled by software and software alone. Right. And so again, um, it's a conundrum. Feel free to email us at info at svn.biz to give your input. I uh, want to once again thank Jedediah, Yue, chairman and founder of Delphix. Always great to have you on, Jed. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Keith. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846, 888-828-SVIN. 